Welcome to Scam This. New York City became the latest job market to introduce salary transparency. And this could have big ripple effects for job seekers and workers across the country. We're breaking down this new law and what it means for you wherever you work. This new transparency is going to make it that much easier for job seekers to know that they are going to get paid their worth and to walk away if they find out that, okay, I'm just not in their budget right now. We've also got the context on the week's other major headlines, from the Supreme Court signaling it might scrap affirmative action. This is going to be a decision that in some way disrupts the former precedent about being able to consider race in a holistic process. To a wild week for the Federal Reserve and Twitter. And to wrap things up, we're turning the mic over to you to hear what's on your mind ahead of Election Day. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. The Fed has announced yet another interest rate hike, okay? But you also saw the Fed chair signaling a bit of a slowdown maybe down the road. If this feels a little bit like deja vu to you, guess what? It is. That's right. On Wednesday, the Fed raised interest rates by 0.75% for the fourth time this year marking the sixth time they've raised rates in 2022. Reminder, this is all a part of their ongoing effort to curb a sky-high inflation rate in the U.S., which is currently hovering around 8.2%. We know what you're thinking. When is enough gonna be enough? And the Fed knows it too. On Wednesday, Fed Chair Jerome Powell emphasized he's aware that it's gonna take a while before prices actually start to come down but that the group has a job to do, and they'll keep raising rates till it's done. And we should point out, one sector has been hit extra hard by the Fed's rate hikes, the housing industry. For context, housing has traditionally been a pretty volatile sector, but right now, it seems to be bearing the brunt of a slowing economy. Home sales have dropped almost 20% from last year, and home prices aren't going up, which is bad news for sellers. And for buyers, mortgage rates hit 7% for the first time in 20 years. So buying is actually way less affordable. And builders, seeing that drop in demand, are just building less supply. So for a lot of us, that dream home, or even a starter home, is out of reach for now. For our next headline, an update on the home invasion targeting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So according to authorities, a man accused of breaking into her home and attacking her husband wanted to interrogate Nancy Pelosi, believing she was telling lies. Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, remains in intensive care after a home intruder assaulted him with a hammer last week in San Francisco. The intruder, a 42-year-old man, entered Pelosi's home with the intention of kidnapping and violently assaulting the speaker and said he was on a suicide mission. The man also named several other targets, including prominent state and federal politicians and their families. U.S. Capitol security cameras actually captured the break-in, 
but nobody was monitoring them at the time. The Department of Justice has charged Pelosi's intruder with attempted homicide, attempted kidnapping of a federal official, and assault. He's facing more felony charges at the state level and is currently being held without bail. This attack has also reignited concerns about political violence and lawmakers' safety. And law enforcement leaders on Capitol Hill said this week they're looking to beef up protections for members of Congress as a result. The Capitol Police said that threats against election officials went up 107 percent between 2020 and 2021. And they've also said that they're expecting that number to increase even more by the end of this year. This renewed focus on security also comes just days before the midterm elections. And the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the National Counterterrorism Center all issued bulletins last week, saying they're expecting more political violence around Election Day. In a speech Wednesday, President Biden weighed in, warning, This violence against Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan officials just doing their jobs are the consequence of lies told for power and profit. We have to confront those lies with the truth. The very future of our nation depends on it. We must, with one overwhelming, unified voice, speak as a country and say there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America. For our final headline, we're checking in on how things are going at Twitter. Because it's been a very eventful week. Elon Musk is officially taking control of Twitter, completing his $44 billion takeover of the social media giant. Elon Musk has arrived at Twitter's San Francisco offices. The top advertising firm is pausing all of its ads on Twitter. Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, used his newly acquired company today to tweet some questionable content. That has some wondering what the future holds for the social media platform. Last week, Elon Musk and Twitter officially sealed the deal. And Musk first entered the Twitter offices holding an actual sink. As in, let that sink in that I'm in charge now. I guess we've got to admire the dedication to the pun, but I'm still kind of cringing. Musk also updated his Twitter bio to Chief Twit and started stirring up controversy immediately. Within the first few hours of his takeover, top executives were fired, the stock was delisted from public exchanges, and Musk actually dissolved the company's board, making him the sole director. He has now reportedly been working on plans to lay off 25% of the company. That's an estimated 7,000 employees in the coming days. Besides the impact to Twitter's workforce, the chief twit is also influencing what content circulates on the platform. Musk has said he wanted to focus more on free speech and content deregulation. As for how that's working out so far, well, researchers found a, quote, immediate, visible, and measurable spike in hate speech on the platform in the past few days alone. And Musk also spread questionable content in his own feed over the weekend, tweeting out misinformation related to the attack on Paul Pelosi. Musk also has other changes in store, including reportedly bringing back Vine, which for the kids listening is kind of like the OG TikTok. And he also wants to start charging people to have a verified Twitter account. 
Paying for that blue check mark sounds like NBD, but some experts say it could lead to more impersonations or misinformation on the platform. This week, the Supreme Court heard two landmark cases that involve affirmative action in higher education. For decades, U.S. colleges and universities have been legally allowed to consider an applicant's race as part of the admissions process, which has helped ensure more diversity on campuses. But that could be changing soon. Because based on everything we heard from the justices this week, it seems like SCOTUS could rule against colleges and universities considering race in admissions and overturn precedent that's been part of American life for years. We probably won't get their official ruling until next summer, but we were able to learn a lot about how this new court is thinking about the law. To help break down some of the legalese and the potential ripple effects, we called up Seema Mohapatra. She's the M.D. Anderson Foundation Endowed Professor in Health Law at Southern Methodist University. Seema, can you skim the two cases for me that we're talking about? I think there's one involving UNC and then one involving Harvard. Yes. So both of the cases were brought by a group called Students for Fair Admissions. We will hear argument first this morning in case 21707, Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. And now against UNC, what they say is that UNC's admissions policies, because they consider race in their admissions, that this violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And they argue that UNC can have a diverse student body without considering race at all. Against Harvard, the group is challenging Harvard's admissions policies and saying that it violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which basically bars entities that receive any kind of federal funding from discriminating on the basis of race. And they say that because Harvard's admissions policies have Asian American applicants less likely to be admitted than those from other races, they say that violates Title VI. Both of these cases were lost by the Students for Fair Admissions, and the federal courts and the lower courts rejected the group's arguments. But the fact that the Supreme Court even took these cases signaled that the Supreme Court was ready to make a change in affirmative action policy. And so we have had these kinds of policies since 2003. There was a case called the Bruder case, and that was when the Supreme Court first said that University of Michigan Law School could consider race in its admissions process. And the majority opinion there was written by Justice O'Connor. And she said that in 25 years, that's not going to be needed anymore, which 25 years from 2003 is 2028. But it looks like the justices might want to roll this back even before 2028. I'm curious what stood out to you in oral arguments and if you heard anything surprising from the justices. I don't know if it was surprising. It was what I expected in terms of the conservative justices on the court 
seeming skeptical about affirmative action. Justice Thomas asked a couple of times what diversity means. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. And we had a lot of the conservative justices basically questioning how entities of higher education, like universities, how they consider race and how long they're going to be considering race as part of their admissions process. And the reason that they kept asking about diversity is because that's what the precedent of the Supreme Court is that you can consider race as one part of a holistic process in order to achieve diversity. And the Liberal justices in the court, I thought the best argument that was made there was by Justice Jackson. There are 40 factors about all sorts of things that the admissions office is looking at, and you haven't demonstrated or shown one situation in which all they look at is race. And she basically had a very, I think, telling hypothetical. So let me ask you another question, because I take it that your position is that UNC is allowed to consider other non-race-based personal characteristics of individual applicants. She said, well, if we have a student that had like five generations of family members that attended UNC and says UNC is really an important part of my identity, that would be okay under the position of Students for Fair Admissions, but it wouldn't be okay for a Black student to say, I am a fifth generation North Carolinian. And until recently, my relatives were not even able to attend UNC because they were slaves. Her point was that we have an equal protection problem where one group that is privileged with this legacy is able to consider their background, but one group is not. And it seems like, in particular, Justices Barrett, Alito, Roberts, to a certain extent, were repeatedly pushing for asking the lawyers about alternatives to affirmative action. I think they reference something called race-neutral alternatives. Maybe there will be an incentive for the university to, in fact, truly pursue race-neutral alternatives. Right. I'm just making sure what qualifies as race-neutral in the first place. Is that race-neutral or not? Can you kind of explain to me what that back and forth was about and why the conservative justices seem so focused on it? The conservative justices were trying to suggest that there might be ways to have a diverse student body without considering race. And so they suggested perhaps looking at kind of low income, first generation type of status, looking at providing financial aid, and that this kind of being colorblind could still achieve diversity. And so I think that we can expect that this is going to be a decision that in some way disrupts the former precedent about being able to consider race in a holistic process as one of the many factors. What are you taking away from how this court views or doesn't view precedent? It definitely seems that they are not looking at being bound by their old precedent, which was probably precedent that was created by a more balanced court. And there seems to be a bold way of proceeding with overturning cases. And really, stare decisis is a concept. Courts are bound by their old 
precedent. And that's how our legal system of common law system works, is that the courts are interpreting their past decisions, not making new law. But it does appear that the court is making new law. We can have seen that in the Dobbs opinion that basically obliterated both Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And we will likely see that now with an affirmative action. My last question for you is, what could be the wider impacts of this decision? I'm thinking about things like maybe workplace diversity or other precedents that could potentially be revisited. I think there's a lot on the table now. We see that this court is skeptical of the benefits of diversity, frankly, you know, and that we need to even name race. So I think in a lot of jurisprudence where we have race as an issue, including kind of employment discrimination, I think we really have a whole host of cases and potential cases that could be brought because right now it might be, you know, kind of open season on precedent. You know, we like to think of law as stable and having some sort of logic and the constitution behind it. This court makes me question that a little bit. Seema, thank you so much. Thank you. New York City, one of America's biggest job markets, just joined Colorado, Nevada, Connecticut, and Washington in implementing a law that requires employers to disclose how much they're willing to pay for open positions. You've probably heard people talking about it as salary transparency. And here's what this latest law means for companies and workers. Companies that have at least four employees, one of whom must work in New York City, are now required to share a good faith pay range for job openings. Roughly 4 million private sector employees will reportedly be affected, since the law covers not only full-time employees, but also part-timers, contractors, freelancers, and some remote workers as well. And there's a reason why this kind of legislation has become more popular in states. Lawmakers are often interested in seeing policies around pay transparency reduce pay discrimination. So sort of having more eyes on the choices that employers make is intended to mitigate their ability to pay unequal or unjust wages, especially to women and minorities. That's Zoe Cullen, one of two experts you'll be hearing from on this topic. She's an assistant professor at Harvard Business School, and she's done research on the effects of salary transparency in the workplace. And like she just said, Lawmakers have been pushing for salary transparency laws to help close pay inequities. You probably don't need a reminder on this, but people are not paid equally at work. In 2020, women earned 84% of what their male colleagues did. For Black women, that number was even lower, at 58%. So the hope is that salary transparency will level the playing field for disadvantaged groups, and allow them to demand the same pay as their white male colleagues. It's expected that people who discover that they're underpaid go to the employer and ask for a raise. 
This information can be thought of as a signal about what the employer is willing to pay for the work you're providing. And if you knew that your employer were willing to pay a higher price for the same work that you were doing for someone doing something very similar, then that would give you an indication that if you asked for more, probably that employer would accept it before telling you to go and find a different job. And according to Colin, the data backs that up. Her research found that salary transparency in job postings can create better pay scenarios for workers because it forces businesses to become more competitive. This pay transparency law looks close to a paper I have about salary benchmarks, where companies discover what it is that other companies are actually paying. Because the salary posting range is basically making externally transparent wages to new job applicants and competing firms. And we do see that in those cases, public external wage information has had the impact of pushing wages up, so creating more competitive pressure between companies, and also equalizing wages of different employees across firms. So this all sounds good for workers, but how do businesses feel about this? Well, the conventional wisdom is that companies want to keep their costs low. And without salary transparency, companies can offer less money to job seekers from the get-go, or at least not reveal their pay practices to competitors. When salary transparency is introduced, it can force businesses to offer more money to attract applicants. And since the law went into effect on Tuesday, some companies have basically tried to do the bare minimum to comply. For example, the Wall Street Journal found that the accounting and consulting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers posted a job opening with a salary range of $158,000 to $434,000. That's just a casual $276,000 swing. And the company can get away with it because the law only says that the estimate has to be in good faith. The law does not provide guidelines for what the minimum has to be and what the maximum has to be in reference to any other value. Now, that means that an employer could basically say zero to infinity and give away no information and be compliant with the law. Other potential loopholes include using temporary recruiters or recruiting firms. And employers can also avoid the law by simply posting remote positions that exclude New York City residents. That actually happened in Colorado last year after their pay transparency law went into effect. But for the most part, it seems like a lot of businesses have started to comply. Corporations like JP Morgan, Macy's, and American Express have all updated their job postings to reflect realistic-ish salary ranges. And for good reason. Companies can face up to a quarter million dollars in fines if they don't. We'll also point out Companies have already started posting ranges for jobs nationwide, not just in New York City, meaning the ripple effect of this one law in this one place could be a lot bigger. While a lot of people have been focused on why companies aren't fans of transparency, there are also major benefits for businesses too. Mandy Woodruff Santos is a career coach and the host of the podcast Brown Ambition. And she told us that companies could see higher employee satisfaction and retention as a result of pay transparency. When you see statistics like 98% of workers support salary transparency, 
if you have transparency around your pay within your company, employers are going to be a lot happier to work for you. And during a time when job seekers have more choices than they've ever had, I do think that employers should be thinking about how can we retain our employees and maybe salary transparency is one of those ways. What I get excited about, especially as a former manager who saw how sometimes randomly companies would come up with salary ranges for job descriptions, like I actually think there could be a cost savings here if companies were forced to put some thought, put some data behind the salary ranges for their roles and have it all in one place so that managers like me could feel confident knowing that this is going to be fair, it's going to be equitable, and there's a method to the madness. Otherwise, it can be really random. So now that we understand why this new law is so buzzy, let's talk about how you can take advantage of salary transparency to level up in your own career. Starting with if you're looking for a job, because you could actually benefit from the new law firsthand. Before, it was this constant sense of, when do I ask about salary? If I ask about salary too soon, will they be turned off by me? What if I get to the end of this interview process only to find out that they are way, way, way worth so much more than what the job is willing to pay? And then you feel like you've wasted your time. This new transparency is going to make it that much easier for job seekers to know that they are gonna get paid their worth and to walk away if they find out that, okay, I'm just not in their budget right now. Woodruff Santis also reminded us that certain incentives aren't included in the salary range and that job seekers should feel empowered to ask for more when it comes time to negotiate. Don't let that range stop you from asking for those additional benefits like your signing bonuses, your equity, and even other things like unlimited PTO or additional days off, remote working privileges. As for people looking to get a promotion or a raise internally, Woodrow Santos says, use the data from the open job postings, whether they're at your own company or postings in the wider market, to drive that conversation. Use this as a jumping off point to have that conversation with your manager and say, hi, I've noticed that this job is listed at this salary range. I'm near the bottom of that range now. What can I do so that I can start working my way up to the top of that range? And that's going to give you a nice little point of leverage and even more than that, just an opening for a conversation. And P.S. If you live somewhere without a salary transparency law, you can still take advantage of this. Look up similar roles in states with salary transparency to get an estimate of how much you're worth in your position. And use those numbers to give yourself an edge when asking for a promotion or entering negotiations. So it's safe to say salary transparency laws are changing the game for workers and companies. Between NYC's law already being in effect and California, aka the fifth largest economy in the world, set to have salary transparency starting in January, experts say it's pretty much guaranteed more states are going to follow suit. And while these laws have primarily addressed open roles and job postings, Colin told us there's another step lawmakers or businesses could take. Salary transparency within organizations, aka knowing how much your colleagues, your boss, and your boss's boss are paid. That's a step some advocates are pushing for to close the pay gap, while others believe that might be a bridge too far and could create an uncomfortable dynamic at work. But regardless of whether or not internal transparency is the next frontier, Woodrow Santos says we can all contribute to creating a more equitable work environment 
something she's learned by doing. It took me a year to close a $15,000 wage gap between two women on my team, one white, one black, and that was just me pushing. Now, I'm not saying that with one email you can change an entire company, but I do think if you feel comfortable and confident and you wanna share your own story of how you're working to make things better at your company, I do think that you should take that chance. Why not? It's no secret that the way we work has changed a lot over the last few years. For us at The Skim, it's meant adapting to a hybrid setup and finding new ways to communicate across different teams and time zones. Through it all, Slack has helped us preserve our company culture and get stuff done. We think of it as our digital HQ. And over the next few weeks, we're teaming up with Slack to give you a peek behind the curtain and share real stories from real Skim HQers. Last week, we told you about our Skimmer Feedback Channel, where we tell each other about what we hear from you, our audience. Today, welcome to one of our newest Slack channels. It's called People Leaders, and it's a private space for all of us managers here at The Skim to get company updates and talk leadership best practices. And I'm getting Molly to join me in a huddle to tell us why it's been so important for us. Hey, Molly. First off, can you just tell us who you are and why we started this Slack channel? Yes, I am Molly Rosen. I'm the vice president of people, which is our word for HR essentially here at The Skim. One of our goals this year was to create a closer community of people managers and provide opportunities for them and us to connect and learn from each other. And Slack is really the only place where we can have all of our, you know, 40 plus people managers engaging on a regular basis. You know, I'm actually more of a junior manager at this company, and I definitely think that sometimes it can feel uncomfortable maybe to ask a question about management or managing styles in a meeting or going over to someone and stopping them in the office. And it's nice to just have a formal company sanctioned forum to be able to do that. For sure. I mean, people management is really hard. There are skills that have to be learned. And we felt this was an important addition that provides that safe space to ask those honest questions and discuss openly experiences and challenges they're having maybe in the moment. I actually talked to my own manager about this too, why it matters for us to have this space and how we've been making use of it. I'm Graylin Brashear. I lead the audio team at The Skin. I think just honoring the fact that as managers, we need a space to talk to each other, to share ideas, to all learn together is really important. And just acknowledging it with a Slack channel is one great way to do that. But it practically is a really great space to be able to see people in the company with whom you have a lot in common and talk to them really easily, especially when we don't get a ton of face-to-face time. We don't have to have a workshop. We don't have to have an offsite or even a special meeting in order to raise a question or support one another. It can be an everyday, day-to-day occurrence. One thing that stands out to me that was useful was just I pinged a reminder to everybody in the channel to follow up on this thing that we had asked each other to do, which is update our Slack profiles and remind our teams to do that to include a lot of really useful information, not just our name and our title, but also a name pronouncer and our preferred pronouns. Just kind of normalizing that so that 
it is just an easy uh, calling card to get to know folks. And and people who do feel they need to include a pronouncer or want to include their pronouns don't feel like they're the exception. And this is very meta, but in that Slack channel, somebody screenshotted their profile, shared it, and was like, just like this. So just a reminder about something that was talked about got shared, and it's a really useful way to share that kind of update. I want to ask you both, Molly and Graylin, can you tell me about a Slack feature you can't live without? I think my favorite is using the Slack bot to set a reminder to myself in a way of almost marking a message as unread, being able to remind myself of a message that I might have seen and then know I need to come back to. Super helpful given the amount of messages I get every day. Besides a Guy Fieri emoji, um, honestly, I think one of the best things is searchability. So being able to so easily be like, oh, I know we were talking about that one episode from April. And I know that Alex sent a Slack about it. I can, with a couple of clicks, pull up exactly that conversation, be right there in the minute and jump back into it. I love it. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Next week, we're taking you to a totally different corner of our digital HQ. We're talking to some of my colleagues on the editorial team about how we come together on Slack to write one of the hardest parts of any web article, the headline. Catch you in the next huddle. Whether or not we've realized it, politicians have had a huge impact on our lives this year. In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedents, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. Happening right now, the White House has just unveiled a plan to help people paying off their student loans. The president has already approved a major disaster declaration for Florida. And today, President Biden announced more military funding for Ukraine. And as Election Day quickly approaches, we're making sure you have all the tools you need to vote with confidence. We're less than one week out from Election Day, and we wanted to check in on what you're thinking about as you prepare to cast your ballot. So today, we're gonna dive into some numbers we got from a recent Skim audience survey. And we've got some help from a data expert and the author of the survey at Skim HQ. My name is Sophie Reese, and I am the Senior Manager of Consumer Insights and UX Research here at The Skim. Sophie told us that 95% of the people who responded plan to vote this year. But overall, the vibes aren't great. Skimmers on the whole are really dissatisfied with the direction the country's going in. They're not happy because overall things have gotten worse for women. And in general, the overarching feeling is that personal safety is not that great right now. Economic security is hard to come by. And there's a larger sense that our representatives are not really representing us anymore. In addition to skimmers giving the government low scores, Sophie also told us that there's a growing number of people who feel like neither party really speaks to them. We're seeing a little bit more of a shift. There's been an increase in the number of people who are registered as independent and more millennial women are not feeling represented by either party and that their electoral options really are choosing the lesser of two evils. Really, they want to be looking at candidates who have 
ideas and platforms that isn't just, I want to prevent something or I'm here for a single issue and who really understand the world that we live in and the decisions that we face as real women and people with jobs and families and big concerns. But that doesn't mean people are staying home this November. In fact, a lot of you called in to tell us what's motivating you to cast your ballot. Like Leslie from Texas, who brought up climate change. Living in central Texas a couple of years ago, we lived through that freak winter storm that ended up killing Texans and sparking a conversation about our grid, why our equipment isn't weatherized, and of course, how did a storm this severe even head to our area anyway? Something that I've really taken to heart as I approach this upcoming election is what are my local leaders doing to help combat climate change? And do they even take climate change seriously? It's something that really does concern me as I look towards starting a family and what kind of planet I'm leaving behind. Here's what Catlin, another skimmer, told us. I am voting because I am so upset with the inflation, with the spending, with the problems with the open borders. We are facing so many big problems in our community and it seems like nobody is caring. So we need to vote. We need to make our voices heard. And here's what Jenny from Boston told us. In my area, thankfully, people are really fired up and ready to vote. Not only that, people are fired up to participate and volunteer and canvas. And I'm seeing more energy than ever before. I totally understand why you might feel disaffected or even cynical about voting. But I'd ask you to consider this. Think about a loved one who would be negatively impacted by your inaction, by you not voting. I'm just kind of singing from the rooftops to anyone who will listen to get everyone that they know out there to vote as well. So consider this your official skim PSA to go make your voice heard and get out to vote. And if you or a friend are looking for more resources to study up ahead of election day, head to theskim.com slash midterms. We'll help you build your ballot wherever you live. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Hannah Parker and Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast, it's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs>